Thank you for listening to Southside Baptist Church's podcast. If you would like to know more about us, please visit us online at southsidesbc.org. Again, that's southsidesbc.org. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, or if you would like to know more about Jesus and why we serve Him, please email us at info at southsidesbc.org. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. You should have received an outline in your bulletin. If you did not, if you raise your hand in the air, one of our ushers will get you one of those here momentarily. And uh, there is no play practice this morning, but uh, boys and girls four years old to kindergarten may go to children's church. I do want to encourage you to open your Bibles. We're going to be looking um, in uh, quite a few different places in the scriptures this morning. And so um, you may, if you don't feel that comfortable in uh, turning back and forth in the scriptures, may want to take one of your sheets of paper and put that uh, right inside the table of contents in the front. uh, So you can uh, flip back and forth pretty easily and quickly. Um, But we're going to be um, looking at a lot of different scriptures this morning. This morning, we're going to begin a new series. Um, Happy Thanksgiving, right? Yay! Everybody full of turkey? Yes? All right. Anybody tired of turkey? Maybe a couple. All right. I love turkey, so I could eat turkey. Um, In fact, I used to have turkey sandwich every day, so that's uh, for lunch. So I could eat turkey all the time. Doesn't really bother me, but I know some people get tired of turkey very quickly. But uh, Christmas is coming, so uh, you'll have a ham before, before long, right? The series we're beginning today, we're going to run kind of all the way for the next four or five weeks uh, right up to Christmas. And I wanted to uh, do a series that uh, really looks at, this series is going to be kind of different, okay? Uh, It's a series in which we're going to look at um, a lot of different aspects of Scripture. Um, Not uh, every Sunday, we're not going to look at just one passage. We're going to kind of look at a lot of different places and stuff. But what I wanted to do is, uh, I've entitled this, The, The Big Picture. Uh, seeing Jesus in, in the pages of Scripture. And I wanted to, to look at different passages and instances in Scripture and see how it all ties together. Uh, there was a book uh, quite a few years ago uh, entitled Mystery on the Desert. A German archaeologist by the name of Maria Reich wrote this book. And in this book, she describes a series of strange geological lines that are found along the coastal plains of Peru. Some of these lines are as long as 30 miles long. Uh, These lines were made somewhere around the time of Christ, actually, somewhere between 100 B.C. and 700 A.D. by the Nazca people. Here's a picture of uh, just one of these lines in the dirt. And as they originally came across these lines, people wondering, what are they for? Uh, For years, historians and geologists assumed that these lines were simply remnants of ancient irrigation ditches until the 1930s, when American historian Dr. Paul Kosick and others just happened upon an amazing discovery about these lines. While studying them, they flew into the area in an airplane, and they saw it. They could all of a sudden see what these lines were. Uh, while flying in on the airplane, they saw that, w- that these seemingly random lines weren't random at all. They actually make up pictures of giant, uh, enormous drawings. Birds, insects, shapes, monkeys, uh, uh, other animals, even a giant human-like fi- figure. Uh, here's a picture of a spider that some of, the, what some of them make up. Huge Uh, drawings, if you will, in the dirt uh, made by the Nazca people. The purpose, many uh, geologists and historians still debate this today, but the point is, friends, the big pictures literally could not be seen from down on the ground. They saw these lines. What are these lines for? They had to step back, look from above before they could see the big pictures. In a very similar way, I believe people often think of the Bible as, as just individual stories that are random, 
that maybe a collection of moral sayings or stories that teach us moral things and so forth. People see the Bible as a series of individual unconnected stories. And when we look at those individual stories by themselves, they often seem separate and disconnected and hard to figure out. But when we step back and we kind of get a bird's eye view and we look at the totality of Scripture, friends, what we discover is that all of these stories in the Old Testament and in the New uh, weave together as part of God's great story of redemption. That's what I hope to show you uh, in this series. Over the next five weeks, friends, we're going to look at some of these individual stories, some of these individual characters uh, in the Old Testament, uh, and some of the individual parts of Scripture, and seek to learn how they all fit together in the overarching story of redemption. Because by themselves... Any one of the stories of Scripture may get obscured. They may get forgotten. What's the purpose of this? They may get dismissed or, or, or just thought of as not very important, friends. But I believe that all of these individual things together that we're going to look at provide a compelling case for the big picture that all of Scripture points to Jesus and God's great story of redemption. This morning, we're going to look at something called Theophanies and Christophanies. Um, you may say, Pastor, what, what is that? How many of you have never heard those terms before? It's okay. You can raise your hand. You never, never heard those terms. I, I had somebody um, say to me, they saw that on the bulletin. They said, um, uh, who's Theophany? Uh, related to Theophilus? I don't know. Who's Christophany? Uh, there, there was, there, you know, those, those terms are maybe new to you. Uh, a theophany, friends, is a combination of two Greek words combination of the Greek word theos, meaning God, and uh, the Greek word epiphania, meaning uh, appearance or shining forth. So a theophany is literally an appearance of God. Uh, In biblical theology, a theophany refers to an Old Testament appearance of God in visible form. Now, in its most restrictive sense, theophanies are most often, uh, not always, but most often where God appears in human form. We're going to look at several of those this morning. But other appearances of God in the Old Testament are seen as theophanies as well, such as when God appeared to the Israelites as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of what? Fire by night. So that's what a theophany is. It's an appearance of God, uh, biblically in in the Old Testament. Uh, What is a Christophany? In its basic sense, If a theophany is an appearance of God, a Christophany is an appearance of Christ. Hey, you guys are catching on quick. In its basic sense, a Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, that second person of the Godhead of the Trinity. Um, It is an appearance of Jesus coming before he came as a baby in a manger. Here in one month, we're going to celebrate when he stepped out of heaven and came as a little baby in a manger to do what we could not do for ourselves. But friends, the scripture tells us that Jesus, the the man who was born as that little baby, was more than just a man. And that he has existed eternally with God the Father in heaven. So if that is true, then could it be possible that this second person of the Trinity, God the Son... God, who came in the flesh, has appeared before he appeared in a manger. When talking about theophanies and Christophanies, uh, it is important to note the word theophany has been used outside the Bible. It's used outside the Bible. Um, It's used, uh, theophanies can be used to refer to any supposed uh, appearance of God as a man, such as in Greek mythology. However, most conservative biblical scholars would agree that theophanies in the Bible are also Christophanies. So uh, we might use the term theophany, and we really uh, would also agree that that would be a a Christophany, and and maybe vice versa. The reason being, John chapter 1, verse 18 says this. says, no one has seen God at any time. We know that God, we worship God in spirit and in truth. It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son has declared him. And so it seems to reason that if no one's ever seen the Father, yet... As we're going to see this morning, there are recorded instances of specific appearances of God in human form in the Old Testament. Then it seems to reason, who is that? 
those instances must be none other than the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen? Now, um, you may be saying, Pastor, this is new. Um, I've never heard this before. I, uh, friends, I understand this brings up a whole slew of questions, which, let's be honest, um, I, we're not going to be able to talk about and answer all those questions this morning. We're really only, only going to be able to scratch the surface. But here's what I want to do uh, this morning. I want to get you thinking. I want to open up your mind to the possibility that this Jesus, that we celebrate his birth in a month, if he really is God, if he was God walking here on earth, if he has existed eternally, then, God, then he, has, he has shown himself before. Uh, I want to open your mind to that possibility. Let me also say, uh, before we continue, that uh, not everyone would agree that the texts we're going to look at this morning are Christophanies. Um, there are other explanations given by good biblical scholars. And guess what? That's okay. I'm not here this morning to be dogmatic about what I'm going to uh, share with you in the scriptures this morning. I don't believe we can be dogmatic that the occurrences I'm going to show you are Christophanies. Uh, what I simply want to do is I want to show you what the scripture says. I want to talk about why you should consider that these may be Christophanies. Open up your mind to those uh, possibilities and encourage you to do some further study on your own. We're only going to look at just a few examples this morning just to kind of open your mind to the concept. So let's begin this morning turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. Here in Genesis chapter 14... Is one of the, uh, well, let me just say this. All of these stories that we're going to look at this morning are, uh, I find, extremely fascinating. Um, and and I, I hope you will, too. We're, we're only going to be able to really scratch the surface on them. Um, but, uh, again, I encourage you to go back and look at them. But here in Genesis chapter 14, uh, we see Abraham meets a man that um, it, it, this, this occurrence is very mysterious. Abraham, if you remember, God had called him out of his homeland of Ur. And he had called him to go to a land that God was going to show him. So Abraham went to the, Canaan, went to the land of Canaan. And Lot, his nephew, went with him. Uh, many years passed and Lot and Abraham had wives and, wives and, and families. And, and, and then they had servants and so forth. And they had animals and, and they, they, they began to prosper. So there came a time when Abraham and Lot couldn't live really in, in the same land. And so uh, Abraham said to Lot, Lot, as we look out over this land, you pick what, what land you want. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. See, Abraham didn't want any trouble. He loved Lot. And he said, you go to the left, I'll go to the right. Lot picked the land towards, anybody remember? Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham went the other way. And so Lot pitched his tent, the scripture says, towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, uh, everything was fine for Lot until one day uh, several kings decided to conquer the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and other, several other kingdoms around there. And uh, King Chedorlaomer had gotten kind of a confederation of kings. and They went in and they conquered Sodom and Gomorrah. And when they did, they, they, they took a lot of spoils and, 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 and things from Sodom and Gomorrah and, and a lot of people and one of the the people they took and families they took and stuff they took was Lot and his family and his animals and all of his stuff. Well, guess what? Word got back to Abraham, and Abraham loved Lot. Um, I don't know that we really know the depth of which Abraham loved Lot. We get pictures of that. But Abraham cared deeply for Lot. And um, so Abraham armed uh, up his 318, I think the Scripture says, uh, of his servants living in his own household. So that shows you a little bit how big Abraham's household was. He had 318 servants that, that were trained fighting men. Abraham got these men, took off after King Chedorlaomer and them, defeated them, brought Lot and all of his family and all of his stuff back. Now, you say, how in the world does Abraham and 318 of his servants go and defeat multiple kings? Well, there's only one answer to that, and that is that God gave him the victory. On the way back, Abraham meets a, a mysterious man, a mysterious king uh, named Melchizedek. 
Look in the scriptures in chapter 14, beginning in verse 18. Here in verse 18, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him. So here, Abraham coming back. We don't know exactly how this happens, but Abraham happens upon this man who is a king, uh, who is a priest of God. And this priest, this king, Melchizedek, it says in verse 19, blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Here's Abraham comes back. He, he uh, meets this uh, this guy, and listen, here's the deal. We don't know much about Melchizedek. In fact, uh, the, the several verses right here that we have, a few other references back to this is really all we know. We don't know where he came from. We don't know anything that happened to him before this, after this. It is as if Melchizedek was dropped out of heaven for this instance. Now, we get a few clues here about maybe who Melchizedek is. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that his name... Melchizedek. Zedek means righteousness. Melchi means king. It tells us that his name means king of righteousness. It also tells us that he, is, uh, he was a king of Salem, uh, thought to be possibly an ancient name for the uh, city of Jerusalem. But also, Salem uh, means, uh, what does shalom mean in, in, uh, in Hebrew? Peace. Everybody knows that. It means king of peace. So here he meets this Melchizedek who is uh, king, uh, Hebrew 7 tells us the king of righteousness, king of peace. And guess what? Uh, they have a meal together, but it's not just any meal. It's a meal of bread and wine. Hmm. 1,500 years or more, more than that, before Jesus ever came to earth as a baby, before he ever died on the cross, here Abraham is met by Melchizedek. They praise God. They give thanks to God. Abraham, it says, in the end of verse 20, it says, he gave him a tithe of all, recognizing this Melchizedek was not only a king, but he was also a priest, and we don't know a whole lot about him. Who is this Melchizedek? I want to invite you to turn over to Psalm chapter 110. Psalm chapter 110. Here in Psalm 110, David, um, David is writing, and he, he gives, the Lord speaks through him to give us a prophecy about the Messiah, about the Messiah's reign. Verse 1 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. We recognize um, that prophecy. Says the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. We know He will. Says your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. We're to serve Him, Amen. The beauties of your holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. And then look at verse four here. Verse four says the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. See, normally in in, in, in Hebrew life, in, as a Jew, the, the priests had to be of the lineage of Levi. They were called Levitical priests because they had to be of that birth order to be born into the priestly lineage. However, Jesus was not part of that priestly lineage. Yet we know that he has become our high priest. So how could, if he is not born into the Levitical lineage, how could God allow him to be a priest? Well, God the scripture tells us here, gave another way into the priesthood, and that is to be appointed by God, such as Melchizedek. Look over to Hebrews chapter 7, tells us a little bit more about this, and asks us to consider who this Melchizedek was. Hebrews chapter 7 elaborates on this. Verse 1 of chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews speaks of this Melchizedek, and he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, 
to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Look at verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Um, now, scholars have debated whether this is speaking literally, that this, he literally had no mother or father or anything. Uh, at the least, what the Scripture is saying is that we don't know anything about him. Scripture does not give us any of these details. But it says, made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So, how was Melchizedek able to be a priest? Because God appointed him a priest. Verse 4, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of all the spoils. So here it's asking to consider how great this man Melchizedek was. We we don't know a whole lot about him. It is as if uh, he was dropped out of heaven into history uh, for Abraham to meet and to bless and to really have maybe even the Lord's Supper together. Who was this Melchizedek, this mysterious mysterious king, priest, that Jesus then was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? Was Melchizedek himself a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? I'm going to let you decide for yourself. At the very least, he is a foreshadowing of Christ. Amen? Turning your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Here in Exodus chapter 3, we are in the life of Moses. We know Moses as the great ruler of the Jews. He led the Israelites out of Egypt. But did you know that before he led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he was a wanderer in the desert. (laughs) He was born born a Jew, raised as an Egyptian, and then thought he would do something to help his fellow Jews and got upset when an Egyptian was treating the Jews bad and he killed an Egyptian and then he, because he did that, ran and fled out into the wilderness. He found what ended up being his father-in-law, Jethro, married one of Jethro's daughters and spent the next 40 years out in the wilderness before God broke into his life again. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. I want to encourage you. I don't know if you feel free to underline in your Bible or on your, listen, on your eye device. Highlight that, Okay. Um, on your device, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Uh, How many of you, everybody here probably familiar with Moses, um, God speaking to him from the burning bush, right? How many of you um, would admit that you glossed over and missed that fact that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush? Never seen that? No, pastor, I've never, never seen that before. It says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. This wasn't in any ordinary burning bush. It wasn't like somebody had lit this thing on fire and it was burning away. No, this thing, look, bush was on fire, but it did not burn. So when uh, Moses, verse, verse 3 said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said. Now, who called to him from the midst of the bush? It says God did. Verse 2, who does verse 2 say appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush? The angel of the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, uh, the, the, the phrase here is the angel of the Lord. It has the definite article there, not just an angel of the Lord. Many scholars believe that any time... Uh, the phrase, the angel of the Lord, is used as opposed to just an angel of the Lord. It refers to a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ. Uh, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not 
draw near this place, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Friends, Moses here had a meeting with God. And God begins to talk to him. Uh, Verse 6 says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Friends, here, we're not going to go through the rest of this story this morning. I just wanted to kind of get you a glimpse here as God and Moses have a conversation. And God uh, works with Moses, uh, not only his unbelief, but his, uh, not his, his lack of desire to want to be the man God called him to be. But here, God meets Moses in the midst of a burning bush. Obviously, if we believe Scripture, this is a theophany. Is it also a Christophany? Hmm. I don't know that we can say for sure. I'll let you decide for yourself. Turning your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. Moses went on to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He led them fairly quickly to the edge of the promised land. However, as God had said he had given them the promised land, um, Moses sent out spies into the land to, to come back and give a report of the land. Remember how many spies did he send out? Twelve spies. Uh, of them that came back, there were two men that came back with a good report. In other words, there were two that came back and said, hey, listen, we can take this land. God has given it to us. Let's go get it. Those two, what were the names of those two guys? Joshua and Caleb. Ten others came back and said what? Can't do that. The people are too big. The cities are too fortified. There's too much. We're just little old Israelites. We can't do that. And so who did the people listen to? The two or the ten? They listened to the ten. And they refused to go in and take the land. And so because of that, because of their disobedience, God allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years is a significant number in Scripture. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They kind of did one of these numbers, okay? You say, how in the world didn't they find somewhere in that wilderness in 40 years? Because God left them in the wilderness for 40 years. In fact, the Scripture says, until that whole generation died off. Unfortunately, Moses, uh, because he got frustrated a couple of times, uh, he wasn't allowed to go in the promised land either. But when Joshua took over for Moses, Joshua led them into the promised land. Here in chapter 5, they have crossed over the Jordan. They're getting ready to to begin conquering the peoples of the land and to inhabit and, and take the land that God had given them. And they come to the edge of the first fortified city by the name of Jericho. Chapter 5, verse 13, Joshua comes face to face with another mysterious character. Verse 13 says, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold. So we don't know, you know, Joshua was going to check out Jericho on his own. Probably the people were camped a little ways away. Uh, We don't know exactly the situation there, but it says, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. So here's Joshua. All of a sudden he sees a man in front of him with his sword drawn. Joshua says, to him said, are you for us or against us? Are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, it's interesting how the the, the man answers. He says, no, neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. In other words, I'm not not for you or against you. The question is not, uh, am I on your side? The question is, are you on my side? God says. We're not going to get into quite all of that this morning, but the interesting thing is here that he reveals himself to Joshua as who? The commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua, it says, fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And so Joshua, when he says, as commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua says, oh my goodness. And he falls down and begins to worship this man. Now, many have said that this is just an angel here uh, that is appearing to Joshua. It's interesting to note that all throughout Scripture, uh, whenever 
human beings try to worship angels and they are just angels, the angels always say, you should not worship me. They reject the worship. But here, this commander of the army of the Lord did not reject it. Uh, Joshua said, uh, fell down on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy ground. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And Joshua did so. Here Joshua falls on his face before uh, the commander of the army of the Lord. He begins to worship him. And in fact, in case um, we haven't put two and two together, as we see chapter 6 begins here, it says, Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. Jericho was afraid. And the Lord, it says, said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. Here, as Joshua continues this common, uh, common uh, conversation with, the Lord, with, with, with this commander of the Lord, here, verse 6, it simply begins to call him the Lord. Who is this commander of the army of the Lord? Friends, obviously, if we believe the Bible, it is at least a theophany. Seems pretty obvious from what Scripture is saying that that is what Scripture is claiming. Was this a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? Well, if God the Father is spirit and, and he is appearing to Joshua and Jesus is the manifestation of the Father, I'll let you decide. Many of the early church fathers believed so. I fall into that camp as well. I'll let you decide. One more we want to look at this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Another one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Um, I probably ought to start saying that. They're all, they're all right up there. It's just awesome. It's awesome to read about God and what He's done and how He's worked in the lives of people throughout history. Here in Daniel chapter 3, we find Daniel and um, his friends... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, for those VeggieTale fans of you, Rack, Shack, and Mark. There you go. Rack, Shack, and Benny um, find themselves in Babylon. You say, how in the world? They're, they're, they're young Jewish men. How did they find themselves in Babylon? Well, um, the Bab- Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, had gone and conquered Jerusalem and taken off. Um, a lot of the, 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 the stuff from Jerusalem, the people, they destroyed Jerusalem and taken off a lot of the, uh, the young men, those young leaders uh, of the Jews. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar was actually pretty smart. When he conquered a foreign land, he just didn't wipe them out. Um, he didn't just take their people. He took uh, their leaders. And what he did was he took their leaders and he brought them into into the Babylonian kingdom and made them, trained them up and made them leaders in Babylon. He um, wanted to pour in the Babylonian culture into them and he thought the best way to conquer a land was to take its leaders and its young people and indoctrinate them in the ways of Babylon. And that's what he really had tried to do. We know some of the stories about Daniel and so forth, but here in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, in part of this uh, indoctrination and part of uh, really um, the type of rule he had, he had made a giant idol of gold. The idol's huge. Many believe it was, a, it was a, a statue of himself. We don't know that for sure. Um, but the, he also made a decree after he made the idol. And the decree was that at at the indication, when, when the trumpets blew and the music played, everybody in all of Babylon was to bow down towards this giant idol that King Nebuchadnezzar had made. And if you did not bow down to the idol, guess what? Bad stuff was going to happen. It was going to throw you into the fiery furnace. So he builds the idol. The music plays. Every time the music plays, everybody is supposed to bow down. Well, word comes back to King Nebuchadnezzar that, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, there are three guys 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who when, when the, the signal is given, they don't bow down to your idol. King Nebuchadnezzar said, no. He said, yeah. He said, bring them to me. Brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, guys, listen. This is pretty simple. We give the signal, you bow down. Got it? They said, we understand, king, but we're not doing that. You see, we only bow down to one God. It's the God of Israel, the one true God. We don't bow down to false idols. Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a chance. They said, listen, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need your chance. We're not bowing down. He said, you know what that means, right? He said, listen, if if you don't, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. They said, listen, we don't care. So we trust that our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, if he chooses not to, we will not bow down to your idol. We come to verse 15. Excuse me. Verse 19, Daniel chapter 3. says that Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. An expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the, heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. As if fire wasn't hot enough already. <laughs> he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Now, how long are you going to last if you're going to cast into a furnace? Seconds, if that. Verse 22 says, Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, this just shows you that it wasn't because the flame wasn't hot, but it says the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the men who threw them in were killed because of the heat of the furnace. said, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste. So we don't know exactly the positioning here, but it must have been that where King Nebuchadnezzar sat, he had a view down into the furnace. Uh, Not your normal fireplace here, okay? Uh, uh, The huge furnace that these men were thrown into. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They said to the king, True, O king. But he said, Look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. The form of the fourth is like the Son of God, or literally a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments garments affected. And get this, and the smell of fire was not on them. I don't know about you, but, you know, just over the past two years, um, I I love to make a little, you know, campfire, you know, in the little thing. And um, I I love to make sit around the fire. But listen if you sit around the fire, you're going to smell like smoke, right? Um, it, it just, it, it happens. It's, it's impossible not to. But it says here, the smell of fire wasn't, was not even on them. Friends, well, you know this was a miracle of God. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at this. God can speak through the mouth of a donkey and he can speak through the mouth of an unsaved king. He said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Friends, three were cast into the furnace. Four were seen dancing around inside. Who was that fourth man? Was it? Could it have been a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm going to let you decide for yourself. See, here's the interesting thing about all of these. None of these are indisputable. 
You're going to find good people, good Bible scholars on both sides. Some will, will argue for it. Some will argue against that. Some will just say they're Theophanies. They're not Christophanies, friends. Um, I'm going to let you decide. I know where I stand and what I believe. The question we come to this morning is this. What's the point of all this, Pastor? Um, what difference does it make? What difference does it make if these were Christophanies or if they were not? We can't say for sure. You know, I, I suppose in reality, it really makes no difference to the gospel. Let me be clear about that. Um, where you stand on that, it makes no di- real difference to the gospel. Friends, God is still God. Sin is still sin. We still need Jesus as our Savior. Amen? But I want to propose to you several things it does mean if they are what I think they are. Number one. First of all, friends, it verifies what the New Testament teaches. Remember, I started out this morning saying, listen, there's a, there's a big picture, right? Um, Jesus claims in John eight fifty eight, he says, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews understood that as a claim of Jesus, that he was God, that he has existed eternally. He was around before Abraham. Jesus has always existed as the second person of the Trinity. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, that's hard for our minds to fathom. How this man, Jesus, how was he God and, and then became a man? But John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of as of the only begotten of the Father. Friends, God has always existed as three persons. Going back, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, I believe, when he says, let us make, or 26, let us make man in our image. The Trinitarian speech there of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Friends, this is not just a New Testament concept. Jesus is God's revelation of himself to us. It verifies what the New Testament teaches. Second, Friends, it helps us see the big picture. As we study and understand these different parts of Scripture, these stories in the Old Testament, and many times I'm surprised at how many people say, you know what, uh, we're New Testament Christians. We're under the New Covenant. Yes, we are under the New Covenant. That covenant is in Jesus Christ and His blood. But we do not set aside the work of God. There are purposes for the Old Testament. Friends, everything uh, tells the story of, uh, of coming to Christ, our need for Christ. Um, all of these things we're going to see over the coming weeks, friends, we're going to understand better. Hopefully, this helps us understand the big picture. And we see how it all points to Jesus. Third, I believe it's just another testimony that Almighty God has chosen to reveal himself to us through the Scriptures. A lot of people will say today, if God's real, show me, God, show me if you're real. Give me a sign. Friends, he's given all of humanity a sign, and here it is. Jesus said some wouldn't believe even if they saw one rise from the dead. Friends, I've finished each one of these instances this morning as I'll let you decide. The bottom line is here, I can preach Christ. I can preach him crucified. I can show you where I believe um, he appeared even before he came as a baby in a manger, friends, but it is up to you. What do you believe? Are you going to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, that he did what he said he did, that he was who he said he was? And that you need him as your savior. You're the only one. Who can decide that for yourself. Fourth. The things we talk about this morning. These Christophanies. Theophanies. They foreshadow. The ultimate incarnation of Christ. Friends. Here in just one month. I think one month from today. We're going to celebrate Christmas. It can become very ritualistic. Maybe you have the, the, the things that you do every year. But I want to challenge you to really think this year and focus on, friends, about what Christ has done, what we celebrate. 
friends, of Jesus stepping out of heaven, the second person of the Trinity, stepping out of heaven, coming as a baby in a manger, being born of a virgin, actually becoming a human being. Some, some people would ask the question, well, pastor, if Jesus came in the Old Testament in these as Christophanies, why did he need to come uh, as a baby? Why couldn't he just come in appearance as a man? Why did he actually have to come as a man? We're going to talk about that in a few weeks, but here's the deal. He had to come as a man so that he could offer himself as the sacrifice for all humanity, for men. He had to become one of us so he could offer himself in our place, so that he could live a sinless life, be the only sinless human being ever, that he then had the right to stand before God and offer himself as a spotless, sinless lamb of God, as a sacrifice for the rest of our sins. It foreshadows his incarnation that he ultimately came to die for us. Um, I find um, certain stories very interesting. Stories we looked at in the Old Testament. I run across other stories from time to time that I found it, find interesting as well. Um, this one that I want to close with this morning, I found interesting, particularly interesting. Um, King Abdullah II of the country of Jordan has become known for doing something rather unique as a ruler. On multiple occasions, King Abdullah has disguised himself, gone out of his palace, and mingled with his subjects. Taking on the character of an ordinary old Arab man, he once went out in public wearing a traditional Jordan kufya, a fake white beard, and an Arabic white dress. While in disguise, the king walked around two government buildings without security, and guess what? Without even being noticed. He even waited in a long line and engaged people in conversation, listening to their point of view. Such incognito appearances are not unusual for King Abdullah. They've marked his 40, this 42-year-old monarch's reign since he assumed the throne and became king in 1999. On another occasion, King Abdullah disguised himself as an old man while he went to visit people in the hospital. Another time, he posed as a taxicab driver, chauffeuring people around the capital city of Amman. Still another time, he passed himself off as a tele- television reporter covering a story at a duty-free shop. When asked why he does such things, King Abdullah says that it's so he can better understand and serve his people. One reporter said this about what King Abdullah is known for doing. He said, I think for a ruler and a king to put on a disguise and go around as a normal civilian to listen to people's problems and know more about their needs is a good thing. I think it would make for a great movie. Friends, it wouldn't make just for a great movie. It's made for the greatest story ever told. Because the King of kings, Lord of lords, God of all gods, has stepped out of heaven and has come to earth. You know, we've had the privilege um, over the past few months of having um, new physical little babies born into our church family. It's so precious to hold a little one. Um, Mark, Nicole, um, Taylor. Gavin, Bethany, as you hold your little one, think of what it must have been like for Mary to hold Jesus and to know what she knew. But not many other people believe her. You know, what we don't know is how how much did she share? Friends, that little baby was the most important baby ever born because that he came. He lived and he died for us. We can be reconciled to God. Friends, I don't know where you are this morning. If you've never accepted Christ, 
the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd invite you today to surrender your life to Him. Believe that He died for you. Believe that He rose again to prove that He was who He said He was. Allow Him to come into your life and rule on the throne of your heart. Maybe you're here this morning and, man, you've professed Christ as your Savior. You're living for Him. Friends, I believe we need to continually be surrendering our sinful, selfish minds and hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we sing this morning, I want to invite you to surrender all over again. Surrender to the one who has given us the greatest story ever told. Amen? If you would, bow your heart, bow your, bow your heads, your hearts, your eyes. Let's pray this morning. Friend, if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. Today, right now, would you simply say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you came. I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe that you were who you say you were. So today I turn from my sin and I want to trust you as my Savior and Lord. Please come into my life. Please come into my heart. Friends, the Bible says if we will confess him, we, will be, we can be saved. If you're here this morning, You've trusted Christ as your Savior, friends, but you just need, there's some areas of your life that you know you need to surrender to Him. Right now, would you say, Lord, I I surrender. I surrender it to you, Lord. I want you to be the Lord of all of my life. Lord, help me to be obedient to you. Lord, you know where we need to respond to you. Lord, you know where we need to allow you to work in our hearts and in our lives. Today, Lord, we want you to do your work as we respond to you.